Like Scott said in his prayer, we are wrapping up our time in Ecclesiastes, and for me it's definitely bittersweet. I don't know about how you guys feel about it. Maybe it's just sweet. Uh, maybe for some of you you're, you're sad about it, but I would say it's bittersweet because on the one hand it's sweet in the sense that I'm looking forward to you know, talking about something other than death and the problem of evil. That would be kind of fun. Um, on the other hand, it's bitter because this book has been so unexpectedly refreshing and life-giving and encouraging. I wanted to take a minute to read a couple quotes that people sent in to us regarding how the book of Ecclesiastes has impacted them. Number one, to just kind of celebrate what God has done through this particular book, but also to see these as kind of a little nuggets and um, almost a summary of what we've learned through this book as we've studied it. So this first one is from Stacia Cagle. I want you to hear what she said. Through these practical sermons and lessons from Scripture, I have learned we are made for more than the rat race we are on. I realize why I do desire and enjoy true fellowship, deep friendships, mentorship, spending time with the youth, and sweet intentional time with family. These gifts are not the meaningless, mundane things of life. They are the God-designed ways of his purpose for all of our lives. These gifts that I truly enjoy are God's present hand in our lives. And this needs to be my daily focus. I'm going to read a second one from uh, Stan Britton back there, in case you want to see who wrote it. Here's what he said. I found comfort in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in our hearts. The moment this painful life is over, it will be put away in favor of what is eternal and beautiful. When we fear God and keep his commandments, we are banking on what's to come. We believe that God is a promise keeper. We are holding our good father to keep his word, and he will. So this morning what I want to do is do a quick summary of some of the major themes in the book of Ecclesiastes, some of the things we've taken away and learned throughout the book. So we'll do that first, and then we'll move into this last section, beginning in chapter 11, verse 7, through the end of the book. And what you're going to find is that that summary in chapter 11, verse 7, through the end, kind of mirrors or parallels some of the major themes in the book that he's kind of wrapping those up and summarizing them. So in our journey thus far, here's what we've seen. Here's what um, Coalette, the speaker, has drawn our, intention to, our attention to. The first one is that life is fleeting. It's short. Here today, gone tomorrow. He's used this word hevel, which means vapor, that our lives are like a vapor. They materialize, they come, and as quick as they come, they're gone. And he wants the brevity of life to sink in. He wants us to look that full on in the face, consider it, and allow the brevity of life to inform the way we conduct our time here on earth. He wants the reality of death and what's coming to sink in and to teach us something. Number two, that life under the sun has real struggles. So that's been a phrase he's used time and again is talking about life under the sun, that he's considering just the very temporal and brief lives that we live here on earth under the sun and the fact that there are some very 
real struggles with that. He's basically taken a lot of conventional wisdom, which would we would kind of naturally think, and things we see in some other parts of Scripture that say, look, if you do well by God and you obey his commandments, things should go well for you. And he's like, yeah, but what about when it doesn't? What about when you look out and you see the wicked prospering and things going well for them, and then the righteous not doing well? The idea that just because you live a righteous and godly life is not guaranteed that things will go well for you, that you will have success, and that the cards will fall in your favor. In fact, he looks out and says, sometimes it seems like the opposite is happening. Right? He looks at all the difficulties and struggles in life. He, he looks at a lot of the things you and I see, and then we think these thoughts of like, how does that make sense with what God has said? And he says them out loud. I would say that if anyone says Christianity glosses over the difficulties of life with quippy phrases like, well, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, it's all going to be okay in the end, that person has not read and considered the honest reflections in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's let us come face to face with those quandaries, those enigmas, those things in life that we see that just don't make sense called them out and let us sit with them, kind of created this tension of what do we do with those things? One of his solutions has been what we see in our third observation is that we should enjoy life. Right? Ironically, he, he looks at the struggles and the difficulties of life under, sun, under the sun and kind of concludes like, hey, you know, the best thing you can do is just enjoy the little things, enjoy the time and the space that God has allowed you to have, that we should enjoy this life under the sun, make the most of it, kind of this carpe diem, like, look, you're here today, gone tomorrow, so take hold of the time that you do have, see it as a gift from God, embrace the good and the bad, and trust in God, and make the most of it, even when you can't make sense of all of it. So now we're going to look at this last section, his, his final thoughts, and we're going we're gonna to actually start in the middle section, there's kind of three sections here. We're going to start with the middle, and the reason is this. The very first of this section, uh, chapter 11, verse 7, through the end of chapter 11, is kind of the coalesce commands. It's like, at the end of this, here's what I'm telling you to do, right? And you're going to see two verbs there. Number one, rejoice, what we just saw. Rejoice in the life God has given you. And number two, remember God. We're going to see that in the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of 12.1. And then he gives us the, the why. He gives us the because, and in this section of 12, um, 2 through 8, which we're about to look at, it's like the here's why you should do that. Here's why you should enjoy life and remember God. So we're going to look at that first. And just to warn you, this is, not warn you, just so you can understand what's coming. He's talking about death in a very dramatic way. And it's, it's worded in a poetic way to really make it pack a punch. And so what he's going to do is he's going to allegorize death into the end of the world. So he's going to be speaking in very apocalyptic terms, talking about all things coming to an end. And what he's doing is he's kind of taking the end of a person's life and showing that for them, it is in a sense the end of the world. Like when one individual comes to the point of death, their world is gone. Everything they've known and lived in up to that point. So he's dramatizes death by expanding it and almost describing it like the end of the world. So let's look through this. First of all, let's look at 12.1, even though we're really focused on 
verse 2 through 8 right now. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. I want to read that because he uses the phrase of your youth. And so just so you know, he's going to use that phrase a lot, your youth, um, someone in their youth. What he means is anyone who's not at the very end of their life. Anyone who's not facing death, it's not at that final stage. So this could be in your teens, in your 20s, which is what we think, but could it also be your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. Anyone who's not right there at the end, even beyond that, um, when your health is good and you're vibrant. And he says this, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Think of the friend or relative you've had who's days away from their departure and they're saying, look, I'm, I'm ready to go. There's, there's nothing left for me in this life. My body is broken. Things are shutting down. I'm just ready to go. I have no pleasure in the days here under the sun anymore. Verse two, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. So you can imagine someone getting old and losing their senses, losing sight. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. Again, this is that apocalyptic language of, think about maybe a village or a town or a country, whatever, where all the women who were used to tending the house become frail and aren't able to do so. And the men who everyone thought were strong and upright are now stooped and bent over in their old age, highlighting their demise and weakness. It says, and the grinders cease because they are few. Again, at first it seems like it's talking about someone grinding at a mill, but what it's really referring to is someone who's lost their teeth and their ability to chew is waning because their teeth are so few. Skip down to verse five. They're afraid also of what is high and tears are in the way. Think about it, as you get old, you may be afraid to go up and down stairs, afraid of falling. Things that normally weren't really an obstacle now become a threat to make you fall and get hurt. And it says, the almond tree blossoms. Most of us don't realize this, don't have a lot of almond trees around here, but they blossom white like a Bradford pear. So it's talking about the hair on someone's head becoming white. And the grasshopper drags itself along and desires fail. Again, think about someone near the end of their life that they've lost kind of their drive and their will and their ambition because there's just not much left for them. Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Verse 6, listen to this imagery here. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. So you basically got four kind of illustrations in one verse there. But the general idea in all of it is that something that was once beautiful, precious, useful, and sacred comes to a tragic and untimely end. Just like our lives that we were made in the image of God to bear his name and his image on the earth, that we are, as human beings, special and precious and beautiful in God's sight. 
And yet, ironically, our lives are so short and so frail and easily broken that we are beautiful and precious and yet fragile and coming to a quick end. Verse 7, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So think of that illustration of a, a pitcher being shattered at a fountain, something that was designed to, to hold a life-giving substance of water is sitting there with the life spilled out of it, shattered in pieces on the ground. And that's what he's talking about in verse 7, that God has given us the breath of life, but our bodies are broke, our bo- at death our bodies are broken, and the life that we were once able to hold that God gave us has now spilled out of us. He wants us to see the gravity of death. He dramatizes it. He puts it up in front of our face and says, look and consider. So much of our lives we spend avoiding thinking about that. And here at the end, he brings it up again. He goes, no, this is what's coming. And it is real and it is dramatic. And he wants us to consider it. There's a book that... um, Scott Lance and I have read as we've studied the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not a commentary. Um, It's just a a book a guy wrote about Ecclesiastes. And I love the title of it. It's by David Gibson. It's called Living Life Backwards. If you ever get the urge to revisit this book um, of Ecclesiastes, pick up Living Life Backwards. Fantastic book. And I just love the title of it. Because he says, look, we often live our lives like from here forward, right? That's where we're going that's where we're headed. And he says, Ecclesiastes encourages us to live life backwards, to consider what's coming at the end and let that inform how we live today. And here's what he says. Your death and the judgment to follow, the great fixed points of your life, are the very things that can reach back from the future into today and transform the life God has given you to live. So we see this first observation that death is on the horizon here at the end of Ecclesiastes. We see that in 12, 2 through 8. And that's kind of the why, that's the consideration, but the commands before that is to rejoice in this life. That's what we see in chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Look at Ecclesiastes 11, 7 with me. He says, Life is, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now this is, an ironic statement for a guy who spent the last 11 chapters bemoaning the difficulties of life under the sun. To now kind of turn it around and say, you know what, after we've considered that, after we've been on this journey, light is sweet. And it's good for people to see the sun. He's saying, look, yeah, it's brief. Yeah, there's difficulties. But there's a beauty and a sweetness even in the brief life that God has given us. That we're to cherish it and see the good things in it as gifts from God. In verse 9 of chapter 11, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. In other words, while you're still alive and active and you're not at the very end of your life, while you're still functioning and doing everything that a youth, a young person could do, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. 
So this command to rejoice doesn't mean running away from God, but then with this little sense of nagging guilt that you're going to be judged for acting a fool your whole life while you were young at the end. It's not that. It's an encouragement to be trusting God and rejoicing in this life within the confines that he, as our creator, has set. So the two commands he gives us, the the speaker coalesced at the end, are number one, rejoice in this life, and number two, remember God. That's what we see at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. I think when we think of the word remember, I don't know about you, but when I, my first reading of that passage, it almost sounds like, hey, kind of tip your hat to the big man upstairs, right? Hey, do, go about your life, rejoice, enjoy it, live it to the full, and don't forget the one who gave it to you. It's not that. What he's talking about is remember God in all that you do and live your life with an awareness of the purpose and the meaning you've been given and that every good thing you see is a gift from your creator. Craig Bartholomew said it this way, regarding this word remember. He said, it represents the radical difference between a worldview in which humankind is central and autonomous and one in which God is central. In other words, he's saying, you can't go about seeking your meaning and purpose with a limited view to what's under the sun. But remember that Everything under the sun was given to us by our creator God and to keep him at the center, to remember him. One of my favorite commentators in this book, Douglas O'Donnell, said it this way. He said, if we try to take this straight line from self to happiness, all the things we call the goods of life, health, riches, possessions, position, sensual pleasures, honors, and prestige, slip through our hands. But if we go through God, not making idols of creation, but living in dependence on the creator, then whatever we receive from his hand is seen as a gift that brings joy. So that's the way Kolak kind of wraps this whole thing up. Is like, hey, because life is short, because death is coming, and this real dramatic speech, here's what you need to do. Here's the advice, right? Here's the takeaway Rejoice in what God has given you and remember your creator. You guys remember, if you've been with us, that the way the book of Ecclesiastes is structured is there are kind of two authors here. There's the author who's kind of compiled these teachings, recorded them, and presented to us. And there's Coalette, the guy that's been speaking. And so 99% of the book is Coalette, the teacher, saying all these things. But then the author who's compiled all this, he shows up at the very beginning just for a second, right in the middle, this little spot where he inserted something, and then we see him getting the final word, putting a period at the end of this thing, wrapping up the book for us. So let's look at that section now. Ecclesiastes 12, 11. Before we read the verse, here's what he's saying. And so this is, this is think of this like an afterword. You know, you've ever read a book, and like, you know, obviously the author is the one who's written the book. Then you get to the very end, and there's like a like an extra chapter tacked on, but it's not actually part of the book. It's just the afterword. It's what someone who's read the book is saying about the book. That's kind of what this is. This is the afterword. And the main idea he says here is to make God central. Look at chapter 12, verse 11. He says, The words of the wise 
are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And that's so easy to understand, right? We all know what that means. Like all of us have been in this situation where your ox is trying to go different ways when you're plowing a field, right? And he wants to go right, but you want him to go left. Like you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You guys have all used goads before, right? Uh, maybe not. Okay. So it's like two planks with like nails sticking out of them. And so if you're trying to get an ox to go in a straight line or whatever direction you want to go him in, but he's stubborn, he wants to go a different way, you kind of poke him with these goads. And that then allows you to steer him and make him go the direction you want to go. And I've never been an ox. It's just, I've done a lot of things, but I've never been an ox. I would imagine they don't like that, right? I would imagine they're not a big fan of the goads. Um, it's an unpleasant thing, but it's a necessary thing in the sense that he refers to God as a shepherd who's guiding us in the direction that he wants us to go, and he knows better than we do. Um, another example of this that isn't quite probably as relatable to us in our culture, um, but also is maybe a good illustration, is uh, having a dog and having that buried fence. Have you guys seen this? Been, some of you guys have these. So we had a neighbor have a neighbor, I should say, who had these um, two dogs that were huskies. They were these big, awesome dogs. Um, and they didn't have any kind of a fence or anything. They just kind of let them roam. And the dogs just kind of knew where the boundaries were. And it was all fine. Until one day they got really old. And one of them veered out onto uh, 552, got hit by a truck. It was really sad um, because they didn't really have those boundaries there. But for the whole lives, their dogs didn't really need them. But that one moment, they did. So they got a new dog, and they put one of those underground fences where you bury, if you don't know what this is, they bury like some kind of a wire or something under the house. Then the dog has a collar. And as soon as the dog goes past that fence, the collar begins to shock them. Um, I remember this dog's name is Bandit. I remember watching him when they had first put this fence in. And I could tell that Bandit was not a fan of this new technology. Um, he would go up to the edge and he would kind of freak out and come back and he would try it again and again and again. And he, he obviously resented the boundaries that his owner had set. He was not a fan of those things. He didn't understand the purpose of it, right? He didn't understand that that was there for his protection, to allow him to live a better life, that his owners were not doing it to trying to limit his freedom, they were trying to protect him by setting boundaries that were healthy. He didn't understand that by having that, he was avoiding disaster and destruction. And I think that's an idea of what he has in mind here when he says God's word is like goads for us. That there are times in our lives when we may look outside the parameters and the commands God has set for us and think, hey, that seems better. I think I would be happier if I did that. If I moved outside of the things God has said, but it says his, when we're in his word, it's like his teachings are like goads that keep us within the boundaries that he lovingly has set. We could say it this way, that true joy is found not in the illusion of complete freedom and autonomy, but within the protection, restraint, and boundaries and instructions of our loving creator. That when we stay within the teachings and the parameters he, have given, he has given us, he has given us those things that we may live a life where we are truly known, loved, and cared for by our creator. And then as the author 
begins to wrap up this book in 13 and 14, he says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. So, I don't know about you guys, but every once in a while I'll read a passage of scripture and I arrogantly think like something should be different. You know, I'm just like, hey, you could have said it this way or maybe you should have done this first or done this afterward or something like that. When I read the book of Ecclesiastes, man, I want it so bad to end right there. I mean, that's just such a great summary. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man, period. Like, I want that to be it. But in God's wisdom, right, he doesn't stop there. There's one more verse, and it's about judgment. And this, in general, right, we don't like to think about judgment. We don't like to talk about that. Hey, give me the command. Tell me what to do. End it, and we're good. But then he adds one more little warning in there. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Why? Why should we then, in light of everything he's considered, why should that be our conclusion? Why should that be our course? Because God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. So let's be real about that. I mean, right? Ecclesiastes is all about let's be real. It's almost like a lot of the chapters could start that way. He's like, hey, you've heard it said this. You've, you think this way that if you do good, good things will happen. But let's be real. Let's consider how life really works. Let's be real about how we feel about this. Because even for Christians, I think, when we consider a verse like that, where he says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, I think that makes us a little nervous at first. It should. If you're aware of your sin and your failures and and your selfishness, imagine like you come to the end of your life You come before your creator, and on this screen, God replays everything you've done with a view to judge how you've conducted your life. It's a little scary. It makes us a little nervous. And I want you to imagine for a minute that he took all the good things and he set them over here. Then he took all the bad things and he set them over here. The good news of the gospel is that when we consider that, when we consider how God would treat us in light of all the bad things he's done, that rather than condemning us for those things, which is what we would deserve, he took all of those things and laid them on Jesus at the cross. Where he took the punishment for our sins so that all that God sees is a beloved son who has walked faithfully in accordance to the scriptures in obedience to God. That's what is left after Jesus takes all the bad things and absolves us of them by being treated as if he had done all those things instead. And we are treated as though we had lived the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. But friends, hear this. like If you're banking on that, if you're trusting in Jesus to take those things away at that judgment day, to have absolved you of that and have been punished in your place, if you're banking on that, you don't need to fear this day. Even though it's initially shocking, we go, ah, oh, that's going to be bad. But then we remember the gospel, that we're forgiven, 
and free and fully accepted as beloved sons and daughters of God. But if you're not banking on Jesus, this book ends with a very stark warning for you. If you're not banking on Jesus, if you're not following him and believing fully on him and trusting on what he did for you to take away your sins, this book ought to rightly leave you unsettled about that, knowing that at the end of your brief, vaporous life here on earth, you will give an account to God for everything you did and that that is not going to be pretty. And that the only way to escape that a judgment awaits you is to believe in Jesus. So if you have any doubts about what that day will look like for you, please come talk to one of us because you don't, you don't have to move into that with fear. That if you're believing and trusting in Jesus, you can move into that season saying, you know what? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go see Jesus with full confidence that all your sins have been cleansed and wiped away and you are poised and ready to be accepted as a son or daughter in his kingdom. I'm going to wrap up this time in Ecclesiastes with one more quote by Douglas O'Donnell and I think he just gives us this great summary of what we can walk away with from the book in terms of, in light of all this, how do we go forth and live our lives? And here's what he said. When one devotes one's life to the Lord, the mundane march through this passing world becomes a dance of eternal significance. Yet it is not as though this world stops being cursed or becomes a substitute for the world to come. We remain in this fallen world, eating, drinking, and working, but we do so to the glory of God and to the satisfaction of our souls. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this text, for um, this book and how great of a journey it's been, how surprisingly encouraging and refreshing um, this book has been for so many of us. We're grateful for just your wisdom that exceeds ours, that, that calls out some of the conundrums we face and the difficult questions and helps us to still trust you, even if we don't fully have those questions answered the way that we want. Um, and God, I, I pray that many in this room, myself included, would revisit this book. I know at first it, and it seemed kind of scary and a little uh, like, ooh, I don't know if I want to go there. Um, but it's been so good. And we would trust you even in trusting what you've given us in the scriptures um, to consider those things and let it shape the way we live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.